Welcome to episode 23 of China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. President Joe Biden and Xi Jinping do not agree on many points, but there is one thing on which they absolutely do concur, and that is that China plays a critical role in the global response to climate change. It's clear that without China's commitment, there's no way that the rest of the world can achieve the goal laid out in the Paris Agreement on Climate Change of limiting the global temperature increase to one and a half degrees centigrade. China is the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, yet its government says it's following a path towards a green transformation. So where does the rhetoric end and the action begin? And how much cooperation can we realistically expect between China and other countries, especially its great rival, the United States of America? My guest on China in Context today is supremely well qualified to address these topics in an interesting way. I've always enjoyed her articles and radio broadcasts, and I feel I always learn something new from her. She's Isabel Hilton, the founder of China Dialogue, a website that analyzes environmental issues relating to China. In fact, she was the chief executive of China Dialogue for 15 years before stepping down in 2021 to take up the role of senior advisor. Isabel, welcome back to China in Context. It's good to see you again. It's great to be here, Duncan. Thank you for the invitation. Now, I'd like to start by focusing on the great power competition between China and the United States. The environment seems to have become a battleground between them. Who's winning? Well, if it becomes a race to the top, we'll all win. Um, if they're trying to do each other down, then I'm afraid we'll all lose. Uh, this is a, a relationship that's gone through several different phases over the years. Um, in the run-up to the Copenhagen Conference of the Parties in 2009, and that was the one that ended in complete disarray, if you, if you recall, um, China had already become the world's biggest emitter of greenhouse gases, but under the Kyoto Protocol, which was then in force, it was not obliged as a developing country to take any action to limit its emissions. And that became an extremely contentious issue between uh, particularly the United States and China, with many people in the United States saying, what's the point of us doing anything when China you know, is destroying the planet all on its own. And then in 2015, uh, Xi Jinping and Barack Obama did a, a bilateral climate agreement. Uh, and they both pledged to work together towards an agreement in Paris. And that was achieved in 2016. And then Donald Trump got elected and the United States pulled out again. So at that point, China and Xi Jinping in particular enjoyed, really enjoyed a moment in the sun because China could present itself as steady and responsible and it got a lot of plaudits, despite the fact that its own mitigation efforts were relatively soft. And now Biden is back with an aggressive set of domestic targets for the United States and China's emissions continue to rise. China's still building coal-fired power stations. But on the other hand, it's been investing for more than 10 years in low carbon technology. And there's a fierce competition between them on every aspect of that technology, from, from the acquisition and refining of rare earths to electric vehicles, to renewables. 
And China, if you look at that contest, is certainly winning in the sense that it is absolutely the dominant player in the global market for renewable energy. It's the biggest producer of, of, of uh, wind turbines, of solar panels and so on. So in that sense, China's winning the competition. That's a good competition to win. In terms of who can cut emissions most effectively at home, well, we'll see. They both need to do more. And, and frankly, it's, it's a little early to tell because they have both declared targets, but we're just at the beginning of that particular journey. But again, if that becomes a race to see who can do best, then I have no problem with that competition. Mm. Well, thank you for your encouragement on that. When it comes to talking about the environment, Chinese diplomats certainly sound very green. Um, I'll read you a couple of lines here from a speech by Ambassador Zhang Jun uh, from the Chinese mission to the UN. Uh, we need to take concrete actions to protect biodiversity. There's only one Earth. We must protect the ecological environment as much as we take care of our eyes. We must take environmental issues seriously at all times, not only during meetings and conferences. In recent years, China has been working hard to build a beautiful country and put its 1.4 billion people on a path of green development. That's the UN ambassador from China. What do you make of such rhetoric? Well, I still slightly pinch myself, to be honest, Duncan, because, you know, in 2006, when, when we launched China Dialogue, China was entering a really profound environmental crisis with appalling air quality, all sorts of problems. And the attitude was that the environment was something that only rich countries could afford to care about. Uh, so people would say, quite frankly, develop first and we'll clean up later. Now, you know, historically, that's what many countries did, including Britain or the United States or, or, or the industrial powers of Europe. But China is so big and it had so little headroom. Uh, it had very little, you know, spare capacity in, in environmental services that even then there were people pointing out that if China didn't um, take a better path, a more sustainable path, it was going to have an environmental collapse before it ever got to even middle income status. So it, it was really extremely serious. And, and what is interesting now is that the ideas that were being circulated almost on the fringe at that time, uh, things like ecological civilization, the idea that you order your economy and your industrial policy around uh, a sustainable approach to nature. That was an idea that was being elaborated really outside official circles, but now it's absolutely mainstream. It's, it's in the constitution and it is very much the policy that Xi Jinping uh, or the regime slogan that Xi Jinping has adopted. Now, this isn't entirely uh, down to just virtuous thinking. It's also that China's industrial model had run out of steam. I mean, you know, that rapid catch up, very wasteful, very polluting, uh, very inefficient model is fine when you're at the very early stages of industrialization. And China did that very fast. Um, but after a while, you price yourself out of the low end of the market. You have to get smarter and cleaner and greener and so on in order to survive and in order to get through the middle income trap. So that's where China is now and and its um, ecological um, situation became part of that so now you have um, 
you have Xi Jinping talking, for example, about green mountains being gold mountains. And that is really about putting, putting a value on nature, uh, which is a serious value. Um, there was a, a time um, in, again, in the mid uh, 2000s, when some of the more radical officials tried to try to point out what pollution was costing the Chinese economy. So China was boasting double di digit GDP growth. And, and that was all the measure, the one measure of success that China was, was really kind of pushing. And these officials pointed out that if you're doing, uh, you know, 15 points of GDP in ecological harm, you're not really, you're not really winning. You know, you're just going to hit the buffers at some point. So they started an exercise in, in green GDP in uh, Anhui province, I believe it was. And I think the results were so hair raising that that it never it didn't thrive but that thinking began to move into official circles so now you do have an official policy which embraces a circular economy uh, for example it's the kind of development that uh, doesn't damage nature in which you it's 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 not an extractive model the way china's economy has been and so on and at the same time, uh, the efforts that China has made to clean up the air, which was a serious uh, political problem that, you know, again, going back to 2006, the, the, that, that first century, there were up to 80,000 protests uh, a year that were acknowledged uh, by the Chinese authorities around environmental issues of one sort or another, many of them pollution. So you had a lot of people who moved into the cities and they found that they were in the middle of this choking smog and their children couldn't go out to play and, and you know, health was being damaged. So it was a very, very live political issue and the government had to do something. And this coincided with the shift in the industrial policy and the general move towards green. So now you have a rhetoric, uh, as you quoted, which is all about beautiful China, um, green, green as gold and, and sustainability. It's not quite matching up with the reality on the ground, but the direction, which is very important in Chinese politics, the direction from the top is, is critical. And, and that is certainly towards environmental conservation. I'm interested in the geopolitical element here. President Biden's been attempting to show the United States is taking a lead on climate change. And of course, there has been dialogue with China. Mr. Biden's climate change envoy, John Kerry, has visited Beijing. But as you were saying earlier, uh, under Donald Trump, the US withdrew from the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Then it subsequently rejoined under President Biden uh, China takes a dim view of that. It's talked about the United States being like a truant student returning to school. They've got a point, haven't they? The, the US has been very inconsistent. Yes, it has been inconsistent. Although I think that quote comes from uh, Foreign Ministry spokesman Zhao Lijian, who is notoriously provocative. Uh, he seems to have missed the uh, year in diplomatic school where they taught you to be diplomatic. Um, <laughs> he's very much kind of of the wolf warrior school of, of, of Chinese diplomacy. Um, 
but yes, uh, the United States has been inconsistent. And in fact, there's one he missed. There's uh, Bill Clinton signed up to the Kyoto Protocol, but it was never ratified. Uh, and the US being in and then out of these global processes is a constant nightmare. You really notice the difference when the United States does engage. And it makes it difficult when it doesn't, or, or even, you know, as under Donald Trump, it stays in the wider uh, framework, but it's not helping uh, in terms of, of uh, advancing uh, climate action. So at the same time, you know, for all the time that China has been engaged, and it's never left the UNFCCC or any of the conventions that derive from it, that doesn't mean that it's always been hugely helpful. Um, in all that time, its emissions have grown very rapidly and they are still growing. And for a long time, China just made the excuse that, you know, we're a developing country, we have to uh, develop. And that was the principle that was recognized in the Kyoto Protocol that developed countries that had already that were responsible for most of the of the emissions that are still in the atmosphere that are you know causing climate change you know they have a, both the capacity and the responsibility to do more and to help other countries avoid uh, growing their emissions so china was was certainly legally right but there is an argument there is an, an ethical argument at the time that the developed countries you know the post-industrial countries if you like emitted carbon in large quantities we didn't know about climate change you know you can't blame an industrial economy of the of the 19th century for its emissions um, ethically whereas in the 20th and the 21st century we were increasingly aware and those choices nevertheless, you know, went in the wrong direction in China. So it's a, it, finger pointing in the climate business, honestly, isn't really very helpful. And I think that what well, we founded China Dialogue on the principle that finger pointing doesn't cut emissions. And in order to cut emissions, you need a much more constructive conversation, you need to understand where your interlocutors are coming from, what the difficulties are that they're facing, and what the opportunities are for, for everyone in this, because there are also opportunities. But if we just focus on the negative, if we just focus on, on the deficiencies of the major parties, then we're really not getting anywhere. And I find remarks like Jowli Jen's particularly unhelpful, honestly. Well, let's stay with the positive message then of dialogue. China sees a leadership role for itself here, which explains, I think, why it's holding all these meetings on environmental issues and climate change. So we've talked about the environment within China. But what about the practical ways China is offering to help other countries to achieve carbon neutrality? Um. Well, the most uh, important way that China has helped other countries so far is that for the last 10 years at least, China has recognized the market opportunity in low carbon technologies. You know, when China's uh, in old industrial model began to run out of steam and the leadership began to think about what the technologies of the future would be, and what China ought to be planning for. 
it coincided with the increasing awareness of the threat that climate change posed to China and the fact that China was by far the world's biggest emitter and that was diplomatically difficult, particularly if China wished to, con to continue to represent itself as a leader of, of G77, of the, essentially the developing world. So it had to do something and these things coincided in a very um, constructive way. So China's investment in wind and solar energy in particular meant that the global price of solar and wind technologies dropped to a point where they become have become cheaper in most geographies. It's cheaper to build a renewable system than it is to build a coal-fired power plant to build an old fat targets. It hasn't really integrated those into its investment and development policies. And so we're quite a long way from that, but, but hopefully it will move in that direction before too much damage is done. Well, thank you, Isabel. And I hope you'll come back and help us assess how China is progressing towards meeting those goals. That was Isabel Hilton, Senior Advisor to ChinaDialogue.net. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, and you can find out more about our activities, including courses and research. It's all on our website, which is SOAS, that's S-O-A-S dot A-C dot U-K. Alternatively, you can type SOAS China Institute into a search engine, and it should pop up straight away. But until next time, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.